Welcome to this JFI Talk on our L'Chaim podcast. These are archived and new events and workshops from the Yedda Nashman Jewish Family Institute in Toronto. We aim to help Jewish families go from good to great by offering amazing workshops, speakers, classes, and events that bring wisdom and knowledge from Judaism, psychology, science, and culture that speaks to our issues as Jewish families and leaders today. For more information, check us out at myjfi.com. And now, let's get growing. I want to mention that I'm very excited that Leanne Matlow is joining us tonight. We haven't yet had a chance to work together, so um, I've consistently been told wonderful things about her, and I'm very happy that she's uh, here with us tonight. Um, I will mention that um, this is actually a book that I have constantly seen and heard about. Um, She's the author of this book, Thinking About Thoughts, um, and I'm going to have her, as we go around and do introductions, tell you a little bit more about what she does. Um, Elisa Klein-Bieber and Avram Nadegel joined us recently at the Teen Mental Health Conference and have spoken for me in different uh, capacities over the last few years. Um, Elisa and I go way back. Uh, We used to work at camp together, and um, she is also the head of student wellness at the York School. And uh, Avram, even though he doesn't want me to say it, is the author of a few books. And um, he actually is piloting a really incredible workshop um, that has to do with applying the principles that he uses in his office in his therapy through Bowen Family Systems and using it with parenting. Um, so if you want more information about that after the session, I definitely recommend. We're actually partnering on this project, and I'm very excited because if we really talk about being a professional parent, this is a great opportunity to really dig in and learn how to do that in a really substantial way. So um, I also wanted to mention, um, uh, Leanne brought this to me. There's something called Mental Health Empowerment Day, um, talking about youth mental health, which is coming up. This is actually in October. Uh, I'm sure you'll see lots of stuff posted about it, but if you want more information about a program like this, I'm going to have this up here, so after the program, if you'd like, you can come up and and check it out. I definitely recommend this. Um, I think that's pretty much it. So the last thing that I'm going to say before we introduce everybody is, um, you know, when we do panels... Um, while I'll say and ask a couple of things to get us started, really I'm much more interested, I really want to hear your questions. Um, you know, for full transparency, I have a, an 11-year-old daughter, so I'm starting to move into the teen experience, and I have a 10-year-old son who thinks he's 17, so <laughs> it, it kind of counts. Um, but uh, really, we want to hear from you, uh, you guys, what are the things you're thinking about? What are the things that you're struggling with? And I will guarantee you, um, after doing this type of a format um, many times, the question that you ask is something that someone else needs to know also. So this is a room with kind eyes, and this is a room where really you can uh, open yourself to ask those questions, knowing that it will help somebody else. Um, so I just sort of wanted to throw that out there before we get started. So. Uh, without further ado, um, uh, Leanne, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you do, and uh, so we can get to know you, and they'll know which things to direct you to. Okay, so I'm I'm the rookie here, so. It's the chair. I admit it. Um, so good evening, everybody, and thank you, Ellie, for inviting me and. Happy to be sitting here with um, the two other um, panelists, as you say. (laughs) So um, I'm not going to tell my life story, but in a nutshell, um, I started my career as a teacher. I did that for nine years. 
I didn't, as I always tell the, my clients, I didn't enjoy marking your tests. So after nine years, and I had by then had three, my three daughters, I stopped, I stopped teaching, and I went back to school to do my master's in psychology, which is what I would have done if I had known I wanted to do that at 18. So that's the other thing I like to tell my clients. You do not actually need to know what you want to do when you're mm -hmm. 18. Um, I went then and did my master's, and I worked in um, just the way the world happened and the way my job worked out. I ended up working in special ed, and I did that for nine years. Nine, you'll see, seems to be my magic number. At the end of nine years there, um, I knew what I really wanted to do, um, which is that I sort of am in a room of parents. I cared, and teachers, cared less and less about children's reading and writing and more and more about their social and emotional health because if they don't have that, all the other things we try to do as teachers aren't going to work. So I went and studied and did my training in something called cognitive behavior therapy. So I work now in cognitive behavior therapy as a counselor. Um, so I have a private practice. My age range for my clients, um, kids love, kids always ask me this question. <laughs> Who's the youngest person? The youngest person was three. She was able to vomit on demand. That was why I was called in. Um, so obviously then I'm working with the parent. Um, but the average age, the youngest really is about six. I, cognitive therapy can work with, I have a couple kids who are in kindergarten, grade one. The oldest I work with is, um, right now he's in second year. I do not work with adults because I don't like them. So, and that's just flat out. I love straight out. I love working with kids um, and teens and young adults. So um, that's the bulk of my work, but the other huge piece is um, as a former teacher, um, I know that teachers don't get a lot of education about mental health in the classroom. So um, that led me to sort of phone different universities and phone different places and phone different schools and school boards. I'm like, hi, you know, do you guys want to talk about mental health? And they're like, and then the moment you say it's free, people open the door to you. So um, after I had written this book and I've been doing this for a while, um, I started doing, so I do a lot of parent workshops and uh, teacher training. And the final sort of way to kind of keep getting this message out, I think, um, uh, for reasons of clarification, I think mental health is the biggest problem out there for our children. I think it impacts on any other topic we want to bring up here tonight or anywhere. And that gave rise to this Mental Health Empowerment Day when, you know, my husband said to me, like, what would you do if you had no limit? And if I had no limit, it would be to create a day. And, and I know you have the same passion because you did a uh, very similar thing and we need more and more people talking about this is get as many people into a room with leading experts to um, give the information. So um, as a parent, when I needed it, I know I didn't know where to go um, with my own children and I see that on a daily basis that not only do parents not, don't, not know where to go, but kids are suffering and Teachers need the information because they're the front line. Parents need the information. And um, so that, that sort of keeps me busy for six days a week, pretty wow. much. So that's wow. what I do. And I, I, I love my job, so it's easy. Do you ever get um, pushback from the teachers in terms of being ready to talk about that? Or do you find um, that they're pretty what ready to I, talk about that? I think it's getting better, and, and what I would say is because in that middle nine years, 
um, I actually I spent at a time. And I have to say that what that gave me was a lot of insight into sort of the more right-wing schools. And I have to say, and I'm really proud to say, that all the schools, like going beyond that from TTC, so to the, from the Cheder to Yesode to um, Beis Chomish, all these schools have opened up their doors and they want to learn. And, and I think that what I would say is that most teachers, they want to learn. Like, they want their children to learn and excel. And, and you know, school's so punitive. And if you're punished for being anxious, um, you know, your you know, anxiety can look like lots of other things. So part of it is a lack of knowledge. If you know what it is, and you can even look, put on a lens and go, whoa, maybe it's anxiety. Maybe I'll treat this child you know, maybe I'll do this instead of, you know, giving them a detention, the world opens up. And, and I, I find that as I'm doing this more and more, people are, are getting it. And they, they, they want to learn and they want to help. And that gives me a lot of hope because that's going to be the solution. And, and we need the kids in the classroom and not in the hall or all kinds of other, you know. I have great stories and I have lots of horror stories right. yeah so for sure um, well I think probably uh, so thank you that's that's really great so now we have an idea of, um, of Leanne's background um, Elisa would you like to sure. give us the, sure. the one two three uh, <laughs> yeah I mean I I think one of the things that you'll probably hear from all of us is um, I, I think that the work that we do is best done by people who feel really passionate about it. And um, I feel, I, I'm the director of student wellness at the York School, and I've been in that role for a number of years. Um, for many, many years, I was also responsible for camper care at um, Camper Math. And um, I've done lots of other things earlier in my career. But I feel every day that it's really my good fortune to uh, have the opportunity to spend my days with young people. I think they're really um, interesting and have a lot uh, to say. And I think one of the things that is changing over time with young people is a growing awareness, certainly in my community, uh, of um, kids need to kind of understand what's happening for them, um, to be expressive about their experience. And so I feel that that's really been my good fortune is to help kids go on that journey. Um, I, I also live with teenagers. So um, I have four sons. My eldest is in second year university, and uh, I have a 17-year-old, a 13-year-old, and a 9-year-old. Um, and so... I just spend a lot of time in teenage energy, which I mostly <laughs> love, and some days less so. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, great, Avram. My, my Give us like the lowdown of what you do, so we can, everybody kind of has a context okay. in terms of what to ask or where to go with different things. So let's see, Montreal JFS for about a year. Uh, after Montreal moved to Vancouver, did child protection, frontline child, you know, knocking on the door, child protection kind of stuff for about a year and a half. Uh, addiction work in Burnaby, British Columbia for about two years as a family therapist. Moved to Toronto and uh, then it was CMHA, early psychosis, bipolar, then CAMH, supervisor, 
consulted to ChemH on a podcast called Teens and Tweens, and then left their private practice um, for about eight years. Wrote a few books, one with my wife. I know I'm here. <laughs> That's the scoop. Um, okay, so uh, I will recommend checking out Abram's books because one of the other things that he does in his practice is he talks about marriage and couples and uh, relationships. So I definitely recommend that. As an aside, I will digress and just let people know um, what you do. So um, I think what I'll do is I'll kick off with one question and then maybe what we can do is we'll open it up and see if you guys want to jump in and, and we'll sort of go back and forth with each other that way. Um, so I think one of the things that, um, so you've kind of given us an overview of what you guys do, and clearly you're all on the front lines. Um, you're dealing with teens on a regular basis. So I wanted to know, um, just as a way to open it up for everybody, what are some of the major themes that you're seeing right now for teens and for parents of teens? What are some of the major themes that people are struggling with? Are you seeing themes, or is it very, very particular to who the parents are or who the kids are? Or are you seeing right now, say, in the last few years, I mean, we hear tons of stuff about technology. We hear tons of stuff about bullying. We hear lots of things in the headlines. But when you're on the actual front lines, what are the things that teens are struggling with, and what are the things that parents of teens are struggling with the most? Um, do you want to go back around this way, or does anybody have something they want to jump in with right away? She's in the school system. <laughs> You've been nominated. You can go first. I'm happy to. So I would say, uh, this will not surprise you, I talk about anxiety all day, every day. That is the my hot topic. Um, and I think I talk about kids' anxiety, parents' anxiety, and quite frankly, teachers' anxiety, right? And I think one of the things... Um, that kids are really struggling with is even understanding what anxiety is. So understanding um, the level of tolerance of anxious feelings has almost diminished, right? So that as soon as, uh, uh, oftentimes, as soon as a student feels any sense of discomfort, um, their immediate reaction is to try to back away from that. And I would say that parents' tolerance of their kids being uncomfortable is very limited. And so it gives a very small bandwidth of what um, experiences kids are able to tolerate, what their, what their range of um, activities are. Um, and so things escalate in my life very, very quickly. So a pure conflict becomes you know, is, is very quickly labeled as an episode of bullying. Um, and there, it, there isn't a lot of space between my child is struggling with another student and it's hard for me to see them struggle to my child is being tortured every day and you need to do something. Um, and that is, I would say, that sort of inclination both from kids and for parents for people to jump in and fix things um, is probably one of the places where I'm spending a lot of time. And so when kids have things fixed for them all through their lives, when they get to university um, and there isn't someone immediately available to fix that particular problem, kids are really, really falling apart. And I'm very clued into that 
that piece of watching our alumni happen to have a child in university and, and watching his friends struggle. Um, and so that is a, a place where I am spending a lot of time and attention, I would say, with uh, the kids with whom I'm working to be a bit more comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, and to um, for parents also to figure out how do you um, support your children and see support as sometimes taking a step back. So that, that it, uh, of the many things that I talk about, I would say that is, is one of the things, yeah. On that topic, so my daughter is, so I guess we're Yeah. Um, I have gotten a lot better at what you're talking about, about stepping back, because I was always fixing. But now I find, I, never had, I was never anxious. I'm the most anxious parent ever. I mean, as soon as she feels it, I can't handle it. Yeah, I yeah yeah, and so I I I should say that part that I I think it's it's very lucky to be a mom in that situation because I know with my own children you feel every every agony for them you feel you know I, I think there's there's some expressions that just hold so true you're only as happy as your least happy child to me that. A hundred percent. And since I have four of them, it feels like someone's always somewhat unhappy, right? There's always a moment. Um, but that's the challenge for parents, and especially parents of anxious children. Um, how do you hold that and find a place for it and not take it on? And, and certainly, I'm sure that you can speak to this, anxiety, there's a real family um, anxious parents often breed anxious children, right? So you look back through anxious families, and there's like a real history of that. Um, and that is that is the biggest struggle, I would say, and certainly not one that you that you have by yourself, right? And so the question is, how do you how do you acknowledge that for your own self and sort of say like her anxiety is like really revving me up? Um, find a place for that, figure out how to process that, and and almost separate it out from maybe some of the steps that you take, you know? I literally separate it sometimes by getting in the car and walking out of the situation. I walk away, I drive away because I can't. Yeah. 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 Just to give yourself a bit of space, right? And I I would say that's also one of the places where kids aren't great at, and, and neither are we as adults. So we're very, you know, we've become very acclimated to instant communication. Um, and there's, you know, someone says something and you respond. And, and what we have lost, I think, sometimes is the power of the ability to take a breath, think it through. So in my camp context, this, what really changed camp for us was the advent of um, when parents could email their kids letters mm-hmm. and kids could respond. So it used to be at the beginning of when I started sort of at this point now 10 years ago when it started, the kids would write a really homesick letter and they'd send it and a week later a parent would read it and the parent would maybe call me and I'd say, oh, great news, all gone, right? She's been having a blast, yeah. we're Absolutely. all good. Yeah. Now the kid writes the letter in their bed 
on the first night of camp or maybe the third night of camp and they're homesick and they send that off and then the next morning the mom is on the phone with me what are you going to do about it and I'm thinking I am going to do nothing because homesickness is part of camp and you your child needs some time but we're not great at giving time so your strategy is a fantastic beginning strategy take yourself out of the situation and just give yourself a moment and that's oftentimes a beginning place that I start with kids. Don't react. Don't answer that question. Don't, don't feel the need to have that quick reflex. Take a step back. It makes me think of, um, Aram, I know in your one of your relationship books you have an exercise called Space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that also something that you would like use in a parent-teen um, situation? And can you maybe talk about what that is a little bit? Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, when we were, uh, when my wife, my wife's a child psychiatrist, when we were writing this workbook, um, we wanted to uh, use a line from Viktor Frankl. I don't know if you know Viktor Frankl. The uh, I think he was an Austrian psychiatrist, studied with Freud. He wrote a little book called Man's Search for Meaning. It's a beautiful book. If you haven't read it, it's a wonderful book. And there's a line that gets quoted all the time. Between stimulus and response, there's a space, and in that space is man's choice of freedom or your, your free will. It's a great line and it gets repeated a lot. The question, of course, is what do you do in that space? And, and, and Sorry, what's, what's your name? Jody. Jody? And as Jody would say, what if my space is really, really small and that my stimulus and my response is sort of anxiety? And so we wrestled with how do you create an exercise around this, this line? And so we wrote, it came up with this thing called space. Now, I'm not going to get into it now because it's a five-step model and it's, it's a little bit involved. But the idea is sort of what you were, you were speaking to. Um, the gist of it is, in the workbook, which is geared towards couples and singles who are dating, when you're about to approach a situation where you know in about 20 minutes you're going to get anxious, this isn't in the moment. This isn't, you know, this isn't, you know, you're going home for Passover and your mother's there and she gets you all anxious, and in the moment you go, one sec, I've got to do space. It doesn't work like that. If you're going to, you're going to go into an encounter that's getting you anxious, you know it's going to get you anxious. Why? Because we know in a habitual way the environments that get us anxious and the people that get us anxious. So it's a five-step process that you, at first you do by pen and paper, and then you go into the encounter practicing this thing, and then after the encounter you sit down with yourself with a cup of coffee and you evaluate how you did what you learned and what you would do differently next time. And the suggestion is to do space three times with three people who work you up, who get you, who get you going. And the idea is like going to the gym. It should hurt the way you break down muscle, and then over time space becomes easy and it gets integrated into your head and thinking. You don't need to do the worksheets anymore. But it's a process, and I, I have to say, you know, I, I'm listening to you speak, and I wish I could tell you, by the way, doing this work for two decades and married to a psychiatrist, that I'm above the anxiety thing. I'm in the same boat as you. Some days, you know, I'll look at my wife and I'll think, man, you know, over two decades of this work, and I'm losing my freaking mind here with my kids. So we're all in this together. I I, I don't know anyone who has cured this thing. I don't know anyone who has kicked. You're in good company. I'm going to add one more strategy if you want another strategy. Everything you said is bang on because I live and breathe anxiety all day, my own and all my clients and whatever. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is that the space is important, but also, because I'm coming in from the cognitive point, what are you thinking? 
what am I thinking? She's not going to be able to manage. She's going she's gonna to what? She's going to fail the test. The boy's going to break her heart. Um, the girl's not going to invite her out for lunch. Like, whatever it is. And when you go through that, then you can just go through some of the other questions. Well, you know, well, what? maybe he will say yes. Maybe she will pass the test. How many tests has she passed? How many has she failed? What's, you know, like starting to process what are what is it that I'm really anxious about? Like, I'm worried, you know, when you, you ask the question. So I wrote down some of the other um, things that teens will tell me. And I wrote down, for parents, it's this idea of, of compare and contrast, right? Parents are constantly compare and contrasting themselves Forget their, I'm not talking about how they're comparing their kids themselves. Well, you're not anxious when your kid doesn't come home five minutes early. Like you said to me, your daughter called from the March of the League. My daughter didn't call until she got to Israel. Like I didn't hear from my kid in Poland. And I kept thinking, hmm, that's, I actually, one of her friends called, whatever. At the time I'm like, is my kid alive? Like I haven't heard from her kind of thing. But it's the kind of thing where we have to start processing what are we thinking am i catastrophizing am i imagine i mean that's what anxiety is right is it the am i imagining the worst thing and the truth is and i tell my kids my clients this all the time i'm pretty honest with them but most of the time and i'm talking 90% the worst thing doesn't happen and if the worst thing does happen then it becomes a problem solving activity so what are we so you failed the test okay well, what are we going to do about it? And I know from my clients, you know, from failing the test goes to calling the president of the board of the school within 30 seconds now, as opposed to, like, um, maybe go talk to your teacher. Maybe, you know, maybe you can do some extra work. Maybe you can do your corrections, right? But right now, that exactly what Elise said. The speed to where we get to, like, uh, I'm calling the board president, just like, is astronomical, like it's just speed of light. So um, that would be one thing. I think the other thing is um, for teens, I hear a lot about, or with the both sort of the um, misaligned objectives and goals, where a kid wants something and a parent wants something else, which is often a a bit of a struggle. Um, I have that right now with one of my clients because the parent is adamant that the kid go on a certain trip this summer and the kid doesn't want to go on that trip this summer and now it's April, so the pressure is really mounting. Um, and I think the last thing I was going to say is they, exactly what Elise said, they don't get to, a pra- they don't get to pra- experience failure because we're, we're either helicoptering and making sure it just doesn't happen or we're we're stepping in and, and orchestrating their friendships or, you know, how they're going to get home every single day. And so, you know, some of my clients, you know, they're at, they are, I just had this with a client yesterday, you know, my mommy isn't going to remember to pick me up, like won't go to school in the morning and is hysterical because mommy isn't going to pick me up. Has mommy ever forgotten to pick you up? No. Does mommy, you know, is mommy going out to, you know, she's flying off to Miami and she's just not going to think about you? No, like, but really at the core, we don't teach them. And then when I ask them, like, well, what would you do if your mom didn't come? I'm sure you find the same thing. Yeah. Well, what about teaching our kids to problem solve? Oh, what would I do? I would, you know, and one of the kids said, well, 
there's always a teacher on the yard, and then you go up to the office, and then the office calls your mom. So I, so what are we worried about? Right? But the answer, interestingly, right. is never, I'm going to take the bus. Oh, yeah. right? <laughs> but, but, that, but that is, I think that that's part of it, because yeah. Yeah. Uh, the degree to which... Um, we are limiting kids' ability to experience independence. And I think that that comes in many ways from a growing sense of worry about the world, right? And and parents' sense of um, safety or lack of safety. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has really served to inhibit the kind of natural developmental things that kids ought to be doing Mm -hmm. that give you a sense of competence and mastery that quite frankly, all of us in this room probably did in our own young lives, right? So we got to walk to our friend's house and we figured out how to take the bus home and we went to the Eaton Center for the first time or whatever those kinds of things are. And I think um, that for many kids, there's a real looming sense of danger, which augments the sense that they've got what to be worried about. So it's really interesting because um, uh, a few months ago we had uh, Mattia Winter come and do a talk called Risky Parenting. Mm-hmm. And she actually showed the statistics, the safety statistics for kids, like how many kids actually just get abducted because they're walking down the street, like or how many kids actually get hurt. She said more kids get hurt in the car with their kids <coughs> than they ever do crossing the street by themselves. So when she actually showed the statistics... They were so out of line with how much fear we have about letting our kids go out there into the world, which, by the way, we have so much less fear with just letting them surf the Internet freely, which I think is really interesting that we don't you know, think of those two things as the same thing. But um, it was interesting to me to find out that my idea of what would be dangerous for them actually statistically isn't. And I, thought, I think that's really interesting that we have a different idea of reality um, than actually what's out there. And, it, and it, it informs our choices of what we let our kids do. Totally. And I think that's really interesting. And to that piece, I just want to add that what I find with my clients is they have ha- little what I call half stories. Mm. You know, I'll have a kid, they're worried about their house being broken into. They'll say, well, this, there's been, you know, lots of break-ins in Toronto. But then, okay, but where? You know, like, has, has one ever happened on your street? Has one ever happened on your house? Has one, you know, and no, no, no. Or the, I once had a boy who said to me, well, you know, there was a boy who was taken off, you know, pulled off the street, you know, and, it, you know, and as he kept talking, he goes, well, actually, I heard it was in Brooklyn, and I heard it was in 1976. Like, as right. he started talking, it's just like, okay, or I cannot tell you how many kids will sit across from me and tell me that they're so worried about tsunamis. Tsunamis, okay? And then you say, well, where, what? Like, uh, is, you know, like, how is that going to happen in Toronto? You never know. No, but that's, like, they hear little snippets, and that, to me, is another danger of this technology, is they get a little piece of a story, and then they're not cognitively able to manage it, and then they don't ask anybody, so they ask their buddies or their friends, and they get like a little piece of a story, and suddenly it becomes stuck, yeah. and it becomes a fear. I, sh- I want to, you know, uh, I, I was thinking, do I bring this up tonight? It's, gonna, it's a can of worms. So I want to, this isn't a political thing, but I'm going to mention it anyways, and I know it's going to get some of you all roused up, but I'm going to say it anyways. So we live in Toronto, we're in Canada, 
And there was an election in the United States about a year ago. Okay, so my Facebook feed is just, everyone's losing their minds. Now, it so happens that I'm a therapist. I have a lot of therapist friends. My wife's a therapist. She's a lot. So we have a lot of therapist friends. And my Facebook feed during the Clinton-Trump thing was just apocalyptic. It was like The Road. Remember uh, that novel, uh, McCormick, The Road. Here's the movie, The Road. Mm-hmm. The most depressing movie in the entire. And it's my Facebook. The Third Reich is coming. We have to, my friends were losing their minds. All therapists, by the way. Okay. Clinton loses. Trump gets in. Two weeks later, these are my therapist friends. Does anybody have behavioral techniques for my kid? Is so anxious. They're crying about the election. We live in Toronto. My friends are in Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto. I have no friends in the states. Okay. They lo- these are therapists with years of experience. They lost their minds. These are adults, 30s and 40s, okay? And they're asking for behavioral and mindfulness techniques for their kids who, are, who, who can't sleep now. I'm, this was on my Facebook wall, right? Their kids, and, and they're sharing, right? Oh, you know, even our kids are worried. No, your kids don't. My kid was in, is in grade one in Associated uh, last year. Gets off the bus, goes, Daddy, yes, how come Clinton is so good and Donald Trump is so bad? My wife are the least political people in the world. Where did he get this idea from? Right? So we have to take responsibility as the leaders in our homes. Right? I mean, it was embarrassing. I was ashamed that my colleagues were spreading their anxiety around like it was manna from heaven. Like they just. Okay, so we have to take responsibility too. And on that note, <laughs> any questions before we keep going? Shock? Well, I know that there's a lot of times when kids' brains are very much so. You can get from South Africa. So I'm petrified. You know, I'm petrified for myself walking around, even though I know Toronto is safe. I'm just I'm terrified all the time. So I try and extend myself, but I'm not sure. Like, should a 12-year-old really be walking around on own? I don't even know... The ages. I don't even know what's right anymore. I know what I grew up with. And at seven years old, I was running around outside. It was fine. But that doesn't happen anymore. My base is in South Africa, and I'm trying to align with Toronto. So I just wanted some advice in terms of ages and being able to walk on their own and that kind of thing. I, uh, 12, I, I think it depends on the, the where they're walking and time of the day and whether and for your own self the first time they do it walk with them so you know that they know how to get from A to B but once they know I think part of a huge piece of parenting is a leap of faith okay if at 3.30 or 4 o'clock when school ends your kid is walking home and you live somewhere in the vicinity if you I don't mean it in any racist way. As long as you're not living at Jane and Finch, you can walk home. Yes, in fact, it's good to walk home because on the way home you get to process your day and kick a rock and pretend you're walking a dog that doesn't exist and talk to a friend, not a screen, and you get to hear music and see things. So I vote yes. I can tell you I can tell you my opinion. So I... Uh, I'm at work full time, and as is my husband, and we have these children who have to get home from school, but my day does not end at that time, and so my children walk home from school. My, I have one in grade four and one in grade seven, they walk home together, 
And this was the conversation that I had with the school. Um, Elisa, it seems that Isaac, who's the grade four boy, thinks that he can walk home from school. Uh, why, yes, he can walk home from school. <laughs> Are you sure? Why, yes, I'm quite sure, because there's no other mechanism for him to get home. Uh, and so what was so interesting to me was, here's this kid. He's like, he can run the world. He's the fourth son, right? He's got <laughs> things under control, uh, who feels quite confident to walk home with his big brother. And the school felt so concerned about my parenting choice that they needed to check out with me to make absolutely sure that I was comfortable with this. Um, I frequently will get phone calls from said children's friends, parents, who also want to know if I'm sure that it's okay that my children are walking home in the winter weather. Uh, why, yes, I am quite sure that it's okay because they have boots and a hat and a coat and we make sure that they've got all of those things under control before they leave. So I, I agree. I think their walking home is one of the greatest things that happen in the day. They fight. They nag each other. I'm nowhere near to see it. They've had a 20-minute, sometimes 30-minute walk at the end of the day. Uh, where they're not attached to a screen. And I'm going to unequivocally answer to you, a 12-year-old, absolutely they can walk home. They can walk places by themselves. And they need to learn, and I agree with you, do that practice. Because you need that confidence that they can do it. You need to see that they know how to navigate red lights. Um, but they also need the messaging from you that the world is a safe place because they're going to have lots of hurdles in this world that um, in my heart of heart, I believe kids need to know that they have the inner capacity to deal with this, right? Because I would suspect in your neighborhood, um, if they got lost, there would be a whole bunch of people who could, they could safely sort of say, can you just tell me where Bathurst is, right? Um, interestingly, so, you know, here's, this is my life. My children are at a day school. I'm, I work at an independent school. So I had two weeks of March break. It was lovely. My kids were in school. <laughs> I was not. I enjoyed that very much. And then, you know, kind of craziness takes over because then I go back to work and they're at home. Uh, which is not the best week of my life. And so Ezra, my my when in grade eight, was um, on the bus. Take, he took the bus to a friend's house. And I did, like, after the fact, because he's my third and I've kind of given up, I was like, Ez, what, what bus did you take? And he said, oh, you know, I took the 63. And I said, oh, did you know where you were going? He said, well, I just knew what bus to take. I was like, oh, that's a strategy. <laughs> um, but he, he feels independent, and I think that that's a really valuable thing, hmm. in my view. I think there was, Ellie, there was a question down there somewhere. I don't know. Uh, yeah. okay, uh, right. Was there a question? I saw a hand. I think it was you. Oh, I was, you know, was going to add, like, the whole anxiety thing, it sort of just brought up, like, my parents 20, 30 years ago, like, were not the same. Like, where, what happened? Is it technology? Like, what happened in 20, 30 years that parents are crazed? <laughs> like, that, that they're so worried about walking home from school. Like, what happened? 
where, like, where did that, because obviously I think that's trickling down, so I'm just wondering in your opinion, like, where is that coming from? It, it's, about, it's a bunch of different things, mm-hmm. yeah. I think technology is that's one. Huge um, the media, mm-hmm. I think what that story about the school calling to ask is a little bit of parent shaming. Like, how dare you? Like, I can tell you a story. My daughter also took the bus home for the same reason. I was at work. My husband was at work. She took the bus home. One day, she before she left, I said, you know, Yael, I think it's going to rain today. Do you want to take your raincoat? Okay, she's cool. She's in grade seven. No, Mom. Okay. So fast forward, four o'clock comes. She calls me. She goes, Mom, it's raining. I'm like, yeah. She goes, what am I going to do? I'm like, you're either going to get wet or... You can wait in the library till I'm done work, do your homework, and I'll pick you up. What's staying in the library? That's your look. So guess what? She got wet, and you know what? It only happened once. And and I think that that's that's just sort of a backtrack to your question. But I think if we don't give kids a chance to to learn on their own, you're going to spend your life, and my kids are that much older, I think, than probably everybody else is here. You spend your life just saying the same thing over again, and they don't believe you. They have to live it. Mm, She had to get wet to believe that maybe she should stick her K-Way in her knapsack just to have it, or something else. The other thing is that there's other parents judging each other. There's media. There's technology. Um... And, and this, I don't know if you guys are going to agree with me, but in terms of anxiety, the school system and the world is harder for these kids. It just legitimately is harder. They've taken the curriculum and they've gone like this. They've added tests and things that we did not have. Okay, I'm, I'm 53, so I had grade 13, so I'm like ancient. But they had, you know, we... We, you could go to summer camp till you were 21 or 22 or 23. Now it's like I gotta be building my resume. I, you know, what what labs are what lab is your kid volunteering in before they go to camp so that when they get their you know want to write their MCAT they have their name is on a paper. Like mm-hmm. the world is legitimately harder yeah. now, and and childhood the meaning and the definition of childhood has really changed. For I, I have kids in grade four and five mm-hmm. asking me questions that I know from my own kids. My youngest is 21. She didn't ask me till grade seven or eight. Like things are just, it's happening sooner and the pressure is more. And that's why I think the only counter to it is teaching them how to manage their anxiety, teaching them how to manage that uncertainty, teaching them not to to think before they act because their brains aren't developed till they're 25, 25 till your frontal cortex is able to with the executive functioning and making the decisions they need to make. So practicing, rehearsing, problem solving with them is, is I think, helpful. So sorry, just going back to one of the comments that you made, which is, I mean, it's kind of like past to me, but like, can they not enjoy their lives like are like is there going to be pressure like do they have to be going to labs and you know like can they not like are they going to fail life if, if you know no <laughs> like, no like, but they- but they will feel the stress mm-hmm. from other people because they're gonna again they hear these bibs and bobs of what other people are doing so is it kind of like just tuning it out and this is my it's about being being your own person okay. 
And, and the most important message you can give your kid is, I believe in you. And that message goes to the kid walking away with that anxiety, going, at their heart, what they really want is to know you love them, and I believe in you. And if you fail, I'm still going to believe in you, and I'm still going to love you, and we're going to figure it out. And, and life is a, is, it's not a, a sprint. It's, it's a marathon. And do you have to be the first one to do everything? Yeah, I think, I think parents play such a, a pivotal role in that piece. Um, I think parents get as sucked in to that kind of compare and contrast that you were talking about um, that we often have to check our own selves and sort of give thought to what, am, what messages am I subtly sending that I don't even, I'm not even aware of. You know, I was sitting in a meeting today. We were having an executive meeting at my school, and we were looking at the numbers of kids receiving learning support. And um, they were looking at numbers of kids in grade one and two who were reading, who were receiving reading support, and th- the number was quite high. And they're all yattering away, and I'm like the non-teacher in the room. And I just said, you know, we're looking at this at this shift. Has anyone ever given any thought in this room to like what are we actually asking of kids in grade one, and is it developmentally appropriate? Because when my eldest son Sam was in junior kindergarten, he slept from the hours of one o'clock to four o'clock every single day religiously. It was like a mahaya. <laughs> but that, and I remember when when I made the application to kindergarten, they said, you know, I can't promise. It's it's a bit of a crapshoot. Like you may get mornings, you may get afternoons. You, you can't choose. And I said. Okay, but I, I need you to know that like he will tear apart your kindergarten program if he's in the afternoon because this kid really needs to sleep. Um, well, now we have full day kindergarten, and I often think to myself, what would Samuel have done? Because through the entirety of junior kindergarten, that child slept all afternoon, <laughs> every afternoon. And so I think sometimes... It just occurs to me that what we are expecting of kids, as you said, at, at such a young age has ramped up that we really, as a, as a community, rarely stop to think, are expectations actually realistic? And are there ways that we can try to put the brakes on? Um, so and that's, that's a rule that I find I often have to play at my school, which is very academically rigorous. And there's, there's a lot of like, you know, kind of um, value placed on the rigor. Um, and I am forever being the person who's asking kind of at what cost. So I think it's really interesting, and, and I want to come to your question next, Jacques, but I think it's interesting because a lot of what we seem to come to is, uh, you know, some of these issues that we're seeing in the teens are actually things that are starting way, 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 way down the line. And I think it sounds like this strange dichotomy, which is academically, we're pushing them way beyond what they're capable of, but emotionally, we're pushing them down way below what they're capable of. And we're kind of seeing this sort of 
weird um, pressure system in between pushing them to think more, but pushing them to feel less. And that's where we're seeing this this unusual anxiety, which is this heightened theme that all of you seem to be seeing in your practice. So I think that's really interesting for me to see, you know, as kids that are sort of coming up the line, um, how those two things are interacting with each other. Jacques, you had a question? Yeah, I mean, it's along the same lines of uh, boundaries and, and expectations. Uh, and really, the, the question is about that uh, um, the balancing between giving them independence and the, the opportunity to, to really self-develop, but also, uh, let's say, family expectations, doing things as a family uh, and uh, participating in things that uh, we want to do uh, as a unit and not uh, uh, each of us kind of pulling in, in different directions. That, that's one thing. Right. Uh, and, and also in regards to uh, uh, techniques to motivate them other than just bribes, okay. which uh, or uh, authoritarian types of measures which, uh, which often kind of backfire. So that's Great. So, so maybe, um, so maybe we'll break it into parts. So, number one is like, how do you get your team to do stuff with the family when it seems like they more and more kind of want to go and do their own thing? Is that what you mean? And then, how do you motivate them? You know, if it's not bribes and you're not just saying, "I'm telling you to do this because I'm telling you to do this and you have to do this," what are the options that are in there? If you're, you know, this is a different type of parenting once you have a team than, than a little kid. So, um, who wants to jump in first? Avram, you want to take a shot? It's hard. I don't know the exact uh, circumstance um, of, of what you're referring to. Um, I find that uh, the families that I work with, problems just don't pop up. It's been years in the making. This is money-back guarantee. I don't see situations in my office where, you know, a very family-oriented, you know, non-anxious family, all of a sudden one of the kids decides with 15 that they're not coming to Shabbos table or they're not going on the trip to Florida, you know. And so the question, of course, is what's the context behind the pushback? What's the flavor of it? What's the texture of it? Um, There is a situation where adolescents are looking for their own independence, their their own, uh, you know, things to do. And so maybe on a Saturday afternoon now they want to spend time with their friends. it's, It's all about the context here. I will say this, though. Um, One of the things that I have noticed, uh, I work with a lot of young adults. The seeds that you plant with your kids, you don't always see the full growth of that work. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of the most beautiful relationships I see with fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and cross, you know, fathers Mm -hmm. and daughters, is work that was put in during the adolescent years to approach and to try to see, hear, and understand your child for who they are. And sometimes there's a bit of a pushback or there's a little bit of a tension in, in that dynamic that comes around when they're 25, 26, and the kid will say, having a coffee with their parent and a laugh, you know, you probably don't remember this, mom, dad, but that that thing that I would push back on and all that kind of stuff, and, and they'll share their appreciation for your efforts. So. I, I was going to to your point, um, for an anxious kid, the best thing you can do for an anxious kid is have parameters and have a schedule. So people always say to me, oh, Leanne, you must have nothing to do in the summer. 
um, because every you know or mm. it's the exact opposite because not everyone goes to summer camp and I love summer camp I have nothing against it but for those people who don't they're they're they if they have nothing to do an anxious mind and nothing to do are not equal they're they're the more mortal enemies they will fight so I was going to say having structure um, helps the anxious kid and and I think having structures like Shabbat dinner mm-hmm. Shabbat whatever you're doing whatever I think is it's actually really important and and it gives your kid an out I always tell my clients the team ones because there will be something that they're going to be asked to do that they're not going to want to do whether it's go out on a Friday night or hopefully not something more dangerous or more scary than that but it will happen and the number one thing I always tell them is just say your mom is a jerk and she won't let you do it and it's the best excuse in the world and you know my parents don't let me go on Friday night oh my parents they're such losers they're so I don't care what they say but at the end of the day you've you've given them a reason that it's that gets them off the hook because they may not be ready for that thing that's one thing the other thing is it's okay to have um, demands being a child being a parent being a teacher being an anything every job has a description and part of the job description of a family member is to take part in the family things so if the kid wants to go visit their friends on a Shabbat afternoon we can work with this you know okay so from four to six you go over to Chaya's house okay but you're home for lunch done like there are certain things I'm willing to discuss and there are certain things I'm not willing to discuss and when you're an adult then you're a parent you can make your own choices but that's the way it is and and even if you get the pushback I, I agree with you they will thank you for it later so but to that point I think you have to pick your battles um, I had a <coughs> my middle daughter was the kind of kid who like would wear what everyone else is wearing and then tie a scarf on her head and, and whatever and people would say like why is she dressed like that and I'm like she was meeting dress code she was an A student she just liked to dress like that so was I wasn't going to fight with her about it because it wasn't worth it because at the end of the day she was doing everything else you would ever want your kid to do she was polite she set the table she never was not a drug addict like you know what I mean she had great marks so why but it's also possible that she wouldn't have been polite you happen to have a child who was polite right, that and followed one, right. all the rules um but the truth is that I think in that whole process, also honoring the developmental stage is really important yeah. and recognizing the fundamental tension that kids are feeling because it is a real push-pull for them. So it is simultaneously hard to let go of those family things and also incredibly appealing uh, to, to venture out and to kind of <coughs> broaden beyond that family. And, um if anyone's read uh, Lisa Damore, she wrote a wonderful book called Untangled, and she talks about joining a new tribe. And I think that that's such good language, right? Um, that idea of broadening her tribe, and, and I don't think, it, the book was written about, particularly about girls, but I actually think it's, it really crosses genders. Um, and I just, I think recognizing the tension, because that is often where the fighting happens, is that kids are feeling that inner tension, and almost 
taking a step back from that and helping them, sort of letting them wrestle a little bit with that tension themselves, I think is really important. Um, at, at the same time, sort of remaining connected. And uh, I do, I really, that piece about um, maintaining some basic expectations, I think is so critical. One of the things that I feel parents really struggle with in adolescence is a feeling of powerlessness. Mm -hmm. So they feel the weight of the culture, they feel the weight of what they think adolescence is, and they find themselves, and you guys can tell me if this is your experience, find themselves shrinking away, kind of thinking, I don't know what my place is here. I don't know how much I can push. I don't know how much to expect. I don't know how much to ask for. I don't know. All of it feels like this sort of heavy weight on many parents of teens. It all sounds very scary. And it seems like the kids are feeling the same thing. Same thing. So like if both you and your kid are both feeling like, I don't really know what to do here, then it's really challenging to know what to do. And so sometimes, sometimes I think the best way forward is to say, I don't know what to say here. You are my first teenager. I am parenting. I am finding this incredibly complicated. I actually need to take some space to think about it. I need to find my path forward. Yeah. I'd like to talk about the poster that, or the image you posted on Facebook with the person driving and the girl rolling her eyes. <laughs> Because that's basically my life. Right? So <laughs> rolling eyes, attitude, and like sarcasm, and and you know we're in the car, and the car is a great place to talk to your kid. Great. But there's the phone. So you know we have a friend who uh, says to his daughters, "If you're in the car with me, I'm taking you somewhere. Put the phone away." Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, should I be doing that? Mm. Like, or is that like not giving her time to, you know, just ask this one question? Or I don't know. So, what do you want to talk about first, the uh, eye rolling or the communication? <laughs> well, I'll tackle the communication thing because I think there's a misnomer, and um, I think that uh, whether it's a marital thing or a parenting thing, there's this idea that if we can just improve our communication, we're, we're going to get on pretty well. And I don't think people have communication problems. I think we have anxiety problems. I don't think when I'm working with a couple in my office and one's on the phone ignoring, you know, and let's say it's the wife, and you see, we have a communicate. He's not listening. I'm thinking, no, he's he's communicating very clearly mm. that he doesn't care about the message. Um, and so, the question, of course, is what what get what's the noise? You know, like white noise or feedback in a guitar amp, like. Right? What gets in between a parent and a child? What's that noise? What's that feedback that gets in? Where, where a child, this is what they would, I don't, I don't do as much child-focused work anymore for a whole bunch of reasons, but I generally stay with the parents. But when I did work with kids, and this is true in Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, what they tell me is, in their words, I don't feel seen, heard, and understood by my mom and my dad. I know they love me. It's never a question of love. The kids don't say, oh, my parents don't love me. No. It's not about love. It's that they just don't know really who I am. So you play with that. And you go, well, why didn't you tell them? And they're like, trust me. Trust me. They don't want to know who I am. You know, and that's the thing. And you know what's fascinating? When I meet the parents, they're kind of right. right? The idea is, 
I love my kid within these parameters and like with it. And, you know, I don't, now I'm not, this is, has nothing, I don't know you, we've never met, okay? But I guarantee you, if I met your kid, right? She might say that, I don't know why she spends more time on her phone. But you know, the question of course is, is it just normal adolescence sort of that's what people do because that's what we're all doing, right? I don't know. But I'd be curious to hear, right? Do you enjoy spending time with your mom? Do you enjoy spending time? Who do you turn to when you have a problem? It's the first question I ask kids in my office. When you have a problem, a serious problem, who do you turn to? And I would say 80% of the time, it's not mom, it's not dad. They'll say, oh, my best friend. And I'll say, well, this is probably true for 20-year-olds. I'll say, well, how come not your dad? My dad. Why would I turn to my dad? As if, I'm, as if I'm making the craziest suggestion in the world. The, the, the noise, the interference is something to look at. Okay? The question is, how do you dim that noise so you can create a safe space for a child and a parent to really talk about what might be getting in the way? And that's, and that's tricky, and I don't think there's a quick fix to that for couples or for parents and teens. I'll tell you about my best, sorry, I was just going to add on to that. My, uh, this is actually one of my highlight parenting moments, actually. So I picked up, I think it was Ezra, I picked him up from school and I was picking him up with other kids in the car and he got in the car with his friends and like never sort of said like, hi mom, got in the car, kept talking to his friends and he got out of the car and at the end of the ride I said, that will be $20. And he looked at me and he was like, what are you talking about? I said, well, you got in the car. You behaved as if I was a taxi driver. This taxi um, car ride cost $20. That's what it would cost. Hand it over. And he was like, are you serious? I was like, I am dead serious, Ezra. <laughs> It has never happened again. I sent a very clear message to him about how it felt to me to be treated as though I was part of the furniture. And I think I, I created for him a line, right? Happy to pick up your friends. Happy to, happy to, to do those kinds of things. That's part of my job as a mom. But I also have feelings. I'm also part of this relationship. This is like, this is not a one-way street. And you need to pay attention to that. That was already a number of years ago. Literally, it has never happened again. But what did he do that was so bad? And how did he he know to change his behavior? We talked, what he did that was so bad, in my view, for me, was he got in the car, he forgot to say hello to me, there was no discussion, he talked to his friends, and there was no kind of acknowledgement of the fact that I was in that space. I was sharing that space with him. And so I think that we all have to, perhaps to another parent that would have been acceptable. It just wasn't okay to me. So I think you're uncomfortable with that. I think that you feel like when you're in the car and you're likely taking her somewhere where she needs to go and you're the one driving, it doesn't feel great to be treated like the Uber driver. It just doesn't feel that good. You'd rather you use that time to engage in some discussion rather than feeling like, I'm just going to do my thing here while I schlep you around. 
And I think it's okay to have that conversation, in my opinion. And you could make 20 bucks at so the same time. Did he give you the $20? Oh, yes, he did. Really? You the 20 bucks? Yep. A hundred percent. So I'm going to add one thing that, that go, it's oh, just another idea. In answer to, to the other question that came up before, I have written down here just the importance of honesty, which I think mm-hmm. goes to how you're feeling and whatever. Mm-hmm. But this may sound like a crazy idea, but I often recommend this, which is, you know, our lives are so scheduled and our lives are so busy and, and whatever. So I often tell parents, you know what I used to do, and, and I think it's a good idea and people do it, book a, book a meeting time with your kid. I, I would book a meeting time. Here's our half an hour. This is our half an hour. Where's our meeting? Is our meeting, you know, on the couch in the living room? Is our meeting in the car because you're so busy? Is our meeting going to Starbucks because I love coffee? It, what's our meeting place? And in that time, I'm not going to be on my phone and you're not going to be on your phone. And what are we going to talk about? Well, you come up with some agenda items. I'm going to come up with some agenda items. And on that agenda could be car etiquette, that it pisses me off that I get, you know, it could also be that, you know, in, and I, you know, I don't know, after the kids, I know that after they've been in school all day, it's critical to check Instagram because so many things have happened right in the day. Like that's in their head. That's the most important thing. So is that the moment that you want to fight? Or do you want to say, take your 10 minutes and check and then please turn your phone off and let's spend 20 minutes talking. Like, I, I think that's where we're honoring, because if you just say no or put your phone down, World War III, right? Like, it's just, so I think it's a, it's a, it's it's a, a bit of a conversation. It's a conversation or a conference. But I love this idea of, like, either it's a family meeting or booking a meeting time where all these issues can come onto the table. Because your kids are watching you, too, and uh, we do bad habits too, like uh, right. Yeah, and the kids. Yes. I think it's interesting yes. too because you know this to me uh, comes back to this idea of being a professional parent. Like, because I know if I'm in a professional situation and I don't necessarily get along or know how to interact with the person that I'm working with, then my job is to try to make sure that the job descriptions are as clear as possible, so we can get it done while we're building a relationship to work together. Once you have a relationship, you can go with the flow. It doesn't have to be so like strict, the type of relationship you have or the job description. But until you have that relationship, it's really good to understand how things work so you can get stuff done. And it seems like part of what you're saying is that's a process creating that relationship once you're a teen and a parent of the teen, which is like a totally new thing. And it has all these different elements that take time to figure out. But in the meantime, to have structure and follow through, like what you were saying, like to have a very clear sense of this is how we do things here. Yeah. As we build a new relationship, then we can, where we'll be able to be more like in the flow of things. But that relationship seems to take take time. Like, you know, the kids are trying to figure out who they are. The parents are trying to figure out who they are, and that's an ongoing kind of. And a thirteen-year-old is not the same as a 17 year old at all and and they're they become more accepting of themselves so therefore they become more accepting of you Hmm. right like a child in grade nine i'm sure you would agree with this the child that enters grade nine 
versus the one that entered that lead, you know by grade 11 they start going okay I don't have to be the same as everyone else I can be me and once they start being me like they get human again they're much more lovely they're much more lovely like uh, like that's like when I started liking my kids again like okay 14 so is less lovely <laughs> yeah. so Lani, at least you told us a nice story yes. your son, you yeah yeah worked out nicely yeah. so you know what if you're at the end of the rudeness that she's talking about and um, it's not going away and despite what I heard back there bribes I can take yep. away your phone I can take away your screen time right. no more Netflix it's still happening it's still not lovely it's still not lovely and it's still not all amicable um, are there things that you can advise us on how to get to that point where it's more lovely mm-hmm. and how not to have to bribe you know yeah. I can give a very clear example where, yeah. you know yesterday I picked up my daughter from school and the first thing she said is, you're late. Uh-huh. Okay? Not gonna, thank you did you pick her up today? <laughs> did you pick her up today? So, no, I actually uh, stopped the car, let her off, and then we take the bus. Yeah. Up. Good for you. Yeah. It didn't work. It didn't... So, I just want to say one thing. It didn't work in that instant. That doesn't mean... This whole parenting job is not, like... It's not for the faint of heart, right? It is not a one-shot deal. Uh, it it did work because you you drew a line, right? You said, "I am not your Uber driver." You did not charge twenty dollars. You said, "And this ride is now done," right? Um, and one of the things that I'm sure anyone who has multiple children recognizes is. They're not all the same. So there are some children who come out of the womb, and quite frankly, they're just a pleasure to parent, right? They're just, they go through the world, and life is kind of easy. And then you have other children who are less so, right? And you think, hmm, I'm the same parent. This experience does not feel the same. Um, and that's tricky. It's tricky for parents. It's tricky to figure out, like, what am I doing wrong here? And it's, it, it just is the reality of temperament, of kind of um, some parent and children dyads just fit better together. And so she may, and I don't know, but of your two girls, she may be the one that you're tangoing with in a different way. Um, and that may be kind of her ongoing struggle. I think going back to what Leanne said, the more you can find your own sense of consistency so that she knows as she's experimenting with really pushing the boundaries, she knows that you still are functioning. You're the constant. Your way of reacting, your responses are consistent and she is ultimately going to know this is the way it goes. So you advise to threats, to, even to fall through these... Even if you're, yeah. do you advise to take away things if they're not behaving or to reward or? So this seems way? to be coming up a lot. Like, how yeah. do you discipline a teenager? How do you discipline? What do you do? <laughs> Can you do it? Is it possible? Like, what are the options if you're not if you're trying to give them independence, but at the same time you're saying this doesn't work or you can't do that? How do you do that with a teenager? Is there a way to do it where it's not super uncomfortable? I don't know. Maybe that's the place to start. <laughs> There, no. <laughs> there, it, it, it's. I would say there's a couple things. One, fair doesn't always mean equal. 
Okay, not every kid is the same, and not every kid, like, you've got to yeah. have some flexibility in your own head. I don't mean you have to verbalize that, but you sort of have to know the kid and what's going to push that kid's buttons. Their job, your daughter, I don't know her, but she sounds just like totally normal to me. Her job is to push your buttons, okay? Sometimes I sit with a kid and I'm like, I feel like you just like making your mom mad. And you know what they say? Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> she gets so red and she swears <laughs> and it's so cool. I'm like, but other than that moment, what do you get out of it? Right? Like, where is this working? So I, that's where I would go back to that meeting. Like, uh, this is, it. you know, you know, you're late. Okay. I don't know the tone, right? But if the tone was you're late, like, Wow, you can read tell time. Like a little bit of sarcasm back. Could be um, if you're not happy again. If you're not happy with the service, find another way home. Okay. So I think it's about okay to answer your question. Can you take things away? Yes. I think the biggest problem I see is that parents want to be friends with their kids so they don't want to say no so they don't want to take it away and they think that you know the kid's gonna do something horrific or hate them forever but at the end of the day being a parent is not being your kids friends like it 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 does happen I will say like my oldest daughter's 28 like we can go hang out and we can go we can go for martinis together like she's 28 years old and it's fine and it's fun but she'll still call me or text me when she has, you know, when so-and-so did something, whatever. And, and it, so I'm still her parent, but we've gotten to a different stage. But it comes from a place where I said, no, no, you cannot talk to me like that. I, do I talk to you like that? Like, has she ever been late? Like, I think it's, so the answer is yes, you can take things away. Will they be mad? Yes. Is that normal that they're mad? Yes. Yeah. But if your if their behavior is not acceptable, then there has to be a line. So um, bribing is is bribing's tough because the ante I think has gotten so high. Like in 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 the therapy that I do, like sometimes the thing is you've worked really hard, so you get a reward. And, you know, the kids are like, well, I want, I want an iPhone, I want this, I this, I that. And rewards in my world are time alone with your parent doing something. So it, whether it's going to play catch in the, in the park or walking around Yorkdale or going to a movie you really want to see. Like one kid chose going to Black Panther. His mother, I thought, was going to scratch my eyes out. She goes, oh, I can't believe it. I'm like, you agree to whatever. Like, but the point is... That you, so you're, not, you're saying the reward isn't necessarily the best reward to use isn't necessarily stuff. No, but it's, it's actually a relationship. It's time. It, I, I think it's it, it can be time. It doesn't have to be things. And um, setting limits for technology, yeah, because of exactly what you said. I just, <clears throat> I, I think that we get caught up in these life hacks and tips and tricks and if it works it works you know, i'm the kind of care i'm into a certain kind of a theory but i but higher than the theory that i believe in is if it works it's in their head like if you do something and it works 
I don't care if it came from Siddhartha, right? <laughs> Do it, and good for you. But the parents that I work with in my office are similar to what you were saying. We've tried all the hacks. We've tried all the apps. We've listened to all the parenting advice. So here's my message to the people who've tried the hacks and the tips and the tricks. And, you know, you've meditated for 15 minutes. and it's not, You've tried all that kind of stuff. There is a process that goes on in families where the symptom gets lodged in the teenager. Now, you have to understand the context behind the problem. If you go into their car and it's a random Wednesday and your daughter's in a mood and it's raining, she goes, mm, well, big deal. But the people that I work with, it hasn't been a one-off thing. It's been going on for a long, long time. And they've been to the Hank Stalecrest and they've tried the little, you know, behavior modifications. We have to understand that in family, anxiety goes around a family like this and gets lodged somewhere. Okay? In the healthiest families, it gets lodged in different individuals. But in some of the most gridlocked families that I work with, it gets lodged in someone. Okay? And that person will become symptomatic. Okay? And we have to understand the context, how anxiety spreads. You know, I've often, Ellie's brought me in, I used to give a talk. I haven't given this talk in a while, but I call it the gift of the adolescent symptom how adolescent acting out heals families. Because you know how marital therapy starts in my office? I'd say 75% of the time, a teenager who's out of control. That's how marital therapy starts. The parents call me and say, we want you to see our kid. I go, I don't work with kids. What? You're the adolescent expert. Don't do it anymore. But I'd be glad to meet with you because you're the leaders of the family. Huh, weird. Okay, we'll do it. Right? Okay, so I meet with the parents. And all I have to ask, it takes one session. It doesn't take five years. It goes like this. How long has this been going on? For about two years. Two years. When did it start? And it just takes a few questions, and you contextualize it, and you put some boundaries around. Oh, that's interesting. The, the, your grand, the Zadie died two years ago. The family business. Oh, oh how's your marriage? Oh, oh, five, oh. Oh, you haven't had sex in five years. Oh, okay. okay. So, and then you start piecing it all together, right? And inevitably, you get a context, you get a texture, you get a flavor of how anxious, chronically anxious this family is. There is no simple answers to this, but the gift is that the leaders in the family now are paying attention, and the teenagers often, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about a one-off little thing, okay? I'm talking about, you've tried all the good tips. You've read the parenting books. The chronic symptom forces people to wake up out of their slumber and go, what's going on? And this isn't about parent blaming, because the truth is, the families in my office, it takes a four-generation family diagram to show that this process has been going on for generations in your family. You know, I've got a temper. I do. My wife doesn't. My wife, it's amazing. She has a, she's got other things, but she doesn't have a temper. I work really hard to control my temper. My dad had a horrible temper. His father had a horrible temper. When I worked in Vancouver and I worked you know, with some very high-risk people doing child protection, and so I'll, you hear these crazy stories and you go, what was your family like growing up? Sexually abused. What about sexually? Ping, 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 five generations. So when we come together and go, you, know, you go onto Facebook on your parenting group channel, oh, just 15-minute you know, time out, and you're like, sounds a little light for what I'm dealing with here. Okay, that's because there's a very complicated process. It's unique to each of your families. That's why your friends can't help you. No offense to your friends. That's why advice columns often miss the mark. Our struggles have meaning. And if we, if we slow down, sometimes it's helpful to have a guide and a coach, but not always. 
Okay? But if we slow down, we can hear the meaning in the symptom. It's not fun. I want to be, it's not a fun process. But the potential to break a generational pattern that's been going on for a long time that gets lodged, often in adolescence, but not always, uh, is a gift as far as I can, I can tell. You mentioned the importance that you said that a lot of times the, the teenager will say to, well, talk to my parent, my parent won't talk to me. Well, what if you do talk to your child, you're willing to sit and talk to your child and listen to their problems, but they don't like their answers? Like, I have a situation I'm dealing with now with my daughter, mm-hmm. and she doesn't like my answer. And she tells me, you're not helping me. I don't want that, not that, and so she'll shut me up. But I'm willing to talk, I'm willing to listen, but... She's the child. Her, it's about school. She yeah. wants to leave her school. Yeah. That's not the answer. She can't leave her school. And I'll try. I'll speak to the school. I'll talk to her. I'll, I'll do everything I can, but her, she doesn't like my solution. So then what do you do? What's your name? Diana. Di- Diane? Diana. D- Diana. I'm going to share with you what my late supervisor said to me, one of the wisest men I've ever met. Beautiful man. David Freeman. Google him. He's an amazing, wonderful man. He said this to me. Uh... 2008. I was confused because I upped my rates and I didn't feel comfortable. And he goes, Avram, let me tell you something. You could charge $300 an hour. But if you leave your client with a good question, not an answer, a good question to sit there and think about the, 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 pro- the problem that they have, to think of it differently, to look at it. If you can leave them with one question, it was $200 well spent versus here's all the advice, do this, do that, don't do this. Now look, I have young kids. I don't have teenagers. Let me be very clear. I have young kids. I don't have teenagers. Right? So who am I to? Right? My one-year-old, we tell them what to do. Well, I don't sit with my one-year-old and go, well, you have the safety pin your mother. Here's, a, here's something I want you to think about. Come back to me in a week. And, you know. But a 14-year-old, they want to leave school? Well, that's an interesting dilemma. Right now, you're a parent. You get anxious, right? So, what I'm working with, when I used to work with teenagers, the reason why I was such a good therapist, by the way, wasn't my training. You know why? Because I don't care about your kids so much. Ah, that's the honest <laughs> truth. By the way, I sleep just fine. Barring suicide, I sleep just fine. You're smoking crack. That's what's it like? Really? Now the parents sitting there going, "My kids." Sm-. This is in Vancouver, of course. My kids smoking crack. Me? Where do you buy that? What? Really? You get on that corner? I never knew they sold crack on that corner. And the kids are, "Wow, he, he's engaging with me." Now, the kid's smoking crack. So I say to the kid, you shouldn't smoke crack. It's, it's, it's not good for you. Right. No. <laughs> Re- you know, I never knew that. Thank you. I mean, our kids are, are, are intelligent, too. I mean, I, I, I don't know who your kid is, but they have. So here's the thing. If you can think of a way to engage your daughter, right, to, to open the discussion, about, oh, you want to leave your school, I guarantee you there's meaning in her struggle about wanting to switch schools. And i got to tell you, the fact that she is turning to you Cherish that, because the best we have with our kids is a relationship where we keep talking. So think of a way to keep the conversation going, and there, there's some gold, I think, at the end of that, uh, that thing. Don't worry about the answer so much. Think, think of some good questions to keep the conversation going. One other thing, not in this example, I'll answer that question in a second, but one other thing to remember with teenagers is sometimes they're asking you questions, but they don't really want your answers. Mm. You think, I, it's a terrible image, but it's almost, I always think of it as sort of like a doormat. In one of my presentations, it has a nice heart on it, though. But it's especially with adolescents. 
they need to talk and they need to say all these things, but they don't really want your answer. And sometimes you can begin a three-hour discussion where really all they wanted to do was vent. And, and I think it's really important to know when to answer and when to not answer. And the only other question, or the other comment I would say is that sometimes, or always, not sometimes, <laughs> always, asking for help is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. And I always tell my clients that. So sometimes if a question is too big, that was my la the thing you said, what would you tell somebody? That if a question is too big and it's too hard to battle between the parent and the child, taking a third party in there as a exactly what you're saying, an unemotional source. It, it's just a completely different, you're not as emotional, and you can answer the question from a purely cost-benefit analysis, you know, thing. But that is the other thing I would ask a kid, because I get that question a lot, kids wanting to leave a certain school or whatever. What's What are we gaining and what are we losing? And Because then what you're going to find out is the real why. And maybe, maybe she really can't, do it with you because you are too emotionally attached. So it might be worth having a third source pull it out. Yeah, because asking for help is not a sign. I think somebody asked there about how the generation has changed. The one other hope I have for this generation is these kids that I work with have no problem talking about their mental health issues. And one kid I worked with after we worked, she said, she called, her mom called me and she said, she wants to do a present, you know, they do those oral presentations in grade five. She goes, she wants to talk about her mental health struggle. What do you think? I said, that's awesome. And she stood up there and she just, and they invited me to come. She stood up there and said, I used to be anxious about this and then I got some help. And you know what happened? Me too. And I, you know, a school asked me to come in to talk to the kids before they went on a trip. So some kid goes, I take melatonin. Me too. How many milligrams do you, like, the kid, like, they, ha they don't have a shtick. And that's the hope, is that the next generation is just going to be like, I need help. How do I get it? Instead of, shh, okay, you can't really get help. Shh, you shouldn't tell anybody. I don't know if you wanted to answer the question. There's lots of other questions. So how do you, have you come across any techniques to get uh, a child um, off video games? And my son, of course, is at that stage where, I mean, he made me take him to a military. I mean, he's joining the military. You know, he tried to get in this summer. And, uh, you know, it's all this game. I think it's from all the games. I mean, it's military games. So that's uh, so, Take to see a general. <laughs> you know, I mean, it gets insane. So I want to know if there's any techniques to get them off these games. I, I don't find that girls, my girls never did it, but my son is into it. So I think, uh, like most things, what we often aim for is moderation, right? In it's helping kids find place of moderation. So when we look at behavior, any kind of behavior, what we want to look at is to what degree is that behavior negatively impacting your life, hmm. right? Um, is this behavior getting in way? So one conversation that I have frequently with kids is how much is, is gaming interfering with sleep, right? I would say that that would 
be, from my perspective, hands down the biggest issue for kids, that they're up very late at night gaming. Um, to what degree is gaming interfering with your interpersonal relationships? You're spending so much time gaming that you're that's the that's the land that you're living in from a relationship perspective and it's to the exclusion of real people in your life right and i think being prepared to have that discussion with your child is really important so things like wow i'm noticing this have you noticed this what's your observation of that right his perception may be very, very different from yours, right? I've got it, ma'am. This is no big deal. I just like it. It's no big deal. Really? Funny that you find it no big deal because I'm kind of noticing that you've not been out of your bedroom in the last four nights, right? So we were all downstairs. Whatever is your, I could write a particular script that I'm hearing all the time. You would have your own experience. But again, I think as parents, our guide... Leanne talked earlier about brains are developing. Kids are often very kind of uh, have real blinders on in terms of this is something that feels tempting and exciting for them. And for many kids, gaming really fills a void. If I am on a game, I don't have to worry about my schoolwork. I don't have to worry about who pissed me off that day. I don't have to deal with my parents. It really can be very consuming. And so I think those are the questions that you need to ask yourself. Is this? It, is it just that you hate gaming, which I would totally understand, but is it? Is it that? Or is this a behavior that you're noticing is having a creep in your child's life such that they're starting to pull back from other activities? And if that's the case, I think you really need to address it. Well, that's what I'm saying. My, my kid is joining the military. He's 15. You know, so it, it's way past that already. What, what I'm saying and asking is, have you guys ever come across a technique that gets the kid off the games. I mean, my kid works twice a week. He's, he's doing hockey. He does everything. He's I keep him as busy right. as possible. So he's still doing but, other things. Yeah, and he's doing well in school, all that stuff. And I'm saying that all his spare time, he would rather do the shoot 'em up games and think he's in the military. So what's so, the pro- what's the problem? I'm, I, well, I mean, that's that was the same question, right? Good grades. Wants to go to the military. I mean, we need good people. Well, what's what's the, no no really? What, what's in your in your opinion? What's the problem? Opinion, yeah. You, you know, if you have to say you need, I got you a dog. You have to go down and play with the dog. I mean, or they're in their room and they could be gaming. They they could do this all their spare time. If I asked your son, if I said to your son, what's the problem? What would he say? I, I don't know what he would say. Well, would would he agree with you? Would he say, my you know my mom? My mom's right. I ha- I have a, I have a serious problem. Or do you say she's? I'm just well, I'm having fun. I'm a- all, all my friends who got boys, you know, I, yeah, they, they some fall into it and some are. I don't know. They don't. Yeah. But um, what I'm saying is that he would say, "What's the problem? All mm-hmm. my friends are on it. They're all talking. You know, on the headphones. Sure. They're yeah. You know, it's. I, I just. I want to come back to something you said because I think. I think you're onto something. I mean, look, we sometimes we talk about teenagers as if they're different from us. As if they're an entity, like they've dropped from some planet, and we're so like, huh? How do they spend so much time gaming? Like, you know, once they evolve to where I'm. But you know what? 
I self-regulate my anxiety in my ways, right? Now, that might be too much time on Facebook. No. You know, it might be too much. Whatever it is how I self-regulate. Now, the question, of course, is, because here's what you're touching on. Is your son using gaming to regulate his internal emotions? Is he regulating uh, uh, as a way of avoiding social interactions because he has some sort of social anxiety thing? Or is he online because he enjoys it and he balances all his responsibilities as you touched on before right now this is tricky now i have to say you know it's interesting i was working with a client once in in the from in the orthodox jewish community and um it was a complicated case living with his grandparents and they were really worried about this kid because he was on the computer all the time i didn't meet the kid until later on but they were bringing in some you know some serious stories on the computer for four or five hours Speaking to adults, I don't know how they knew this. Well, it turns out he was learning how to code. Now, I don't know how to code, like how to make a website, or I don't know if it was CSS or JavaScript, but it's complicated. So he, his marks were okay. He had friends. I, I finally met the kid, right? But he was learning how to code. Why? He wanted to make an iPhone app. Now, that's a pretty industrious thing to do when you're 14, 15. I got to tell you something. I, I, it wasn't my thing. But when you look at all the markers, now this is where you have to, you know, your situation is your situation. But this kid had friends, went to school, wasn't a great student, but not a bad student, right? But was, was online programming. The grandparents didn't understand what was going on. They didn't have that kind of communication. In my office, he, he basically said, look, they're so anxious about what I'm doing, I pull away. By the way, this is something I've, I've been wanting to, just want to throw this in here. The more we focus on someone, whether it's your spouse or your child, the worse the person does. Money back guarantee. I don't care who it is. This isn't a teen parent thing. If I worry about you or I worry about you and you know I'm worried about you. Why? Because I'm worried about you. You're going to start doing this like in your own kind of way. I don't know too many people who are like, Mom, you know what I really like about you? When you worry about, when you're, when you worry about me, Mom, right? You know? Yeah, there's something about the worry that really warms the cockles of my heart, you know? So here's the thing, you know? And again, it comes back to what you were saying. The markers in adolescence aren't very complicated. We know when there's problems, when the marks suddenly dip, right? When they lose interest in the things that they were interested in. Your kid sounds future-focused, right? Wants to go to the military, future-focused, has friends, good grades, you're going to have to throw me a pretty good curveball here to tell you where, where he's dropping the ball because it sounds pretty good. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, it seems like you feel like it's an addiction. Yeah, well, it is. These are our cold men. I hear that it's an addiction that you're taking over the kids' life. Well, it can be. It can be. And it sounds like also... I think also, you know, and I think gaming and technology sort of fall under the same thing, like whether your daughters are on their phone or whether the boys are, are doing gaming, I think, you know, parenting technology is um, is a challenging thing, mostly because we also as parents don't know. Thanks, Paul. Um, we're going to wrap it up in about five minutes or so. But I think um, one of the things that, that often comes up is, is how do you parent technology? Um, it, it sounds like you guys are laying out also like 
you know, the, the markers for, for something being a problem are pretty much the same with technology as it is for anything else. Right. If they're, yeah. not, if they're losing sleep, if they're cutting themselves off from friends, if their marks are suddenly different, that parenting technology seems very similar to any other place where there could be an issue, mm-hmm. whether it's drugs, whether, you know, any kind of addiction or something that would set in, you're going to know that there's a problem because those symptoms will be there. They're not sleeping, they don't have friends, they're not eating properly, all of these different things. So, um, uh, so I don't know if there's something about technology that you want to say, I think maybe as the last sort of piece that we addressed tonight, and then if people have other questions... But I just think it's the biggest problem. Technology. Absolutely. Well, what's the problem? Can you? But I just want to. When you say it's the when you say it's the biggest, we have to be clear about it. Just because we say something is a problem, doesn't mean it's a problem, right? So I want you to define it for me because I agree with you. I think there's. I, I would say there are challenges to technology that I did not have growing up, and there are advantages. There are challenges and there are advantages. I want to hear from you because I'm curious. In your opinion, what is the what is the unique problem for you? My daughter, my daughter is not addicted at all, but she tells me that the other kids are the ones that have a problem. It's difficult to talk to them. They don't carry conversation. They don't want to do anything. They just want to look at the phone. Uh, the other other friends of hers complain of the same thing. I go to the park. I want to play. The other kids just want to look at the phone. They snob each other by looking at the phone. So people's pride gets hurt, and then they they don't initiate communication, and then everybody just sits in their room and and not meet. So I find that the teenagers these days, instead of hanging out together, they don't do much together. They sit in their rooms. There was an, uh, an article about it in the Atlantic magazine. And they're anxious. Alicia, you have a different perspective. They're yeah. in the rooms and they're anxious. Absolutely. That's what that are. I have a kid who was struggling to form friendships at school. He's not like a super athletic super athletic kid, but we have all the gaming systems in our house, and we, you know, Fortnite, I don't know if this is what your son is playing, but it's people are too. Um, and my son no. this year has, our house has now become the house where everybody comes and plays. Now, they're not always only playing Fortnite, they're now, they've now formed, like, friendships because they're playing on this technology together. They even play with each other over the system, so if they can't get together, they, so anyways, my son who started the year without a lot of friends now has a whole group of friends, and it's not just based on the technology, but technology brought them together. Um, and so a good I have another son right. who's used technology, he's working on some, um, some project, it's like an exit project in school. I don't know what he did, but he sourced a expert contact on energy savings and the TV center, I don't know, whatever. Some big executive, he set up a meeting <laughs> for tomorrow through technology. Like, I just think of, like, there's advances. Yeah, in I think he raised a really important point. I, I think that if you use technology in the right way, it can... Uh, can I ask something? Yeah. When did your son start playing video games and technology? Like this year or last year? No, it's been a few years. Well, my son, my, my son's a great six. He just got a phone. But yes, they've had, I had a, I had a Nintendo when my son was born because my husband wanted a Nintendo. <laughs> I've always had a gaming system in my house. Like people, like, you know, 
I don't think technology has to be, you know, there has to be limits. Like my kids can't just play all the time. And if they're not socializing or they're not eating or they're not like reading or being, like I just, I, I think, don't like it. I think what we're talking about, yeah. though, it, it, when we distill this down, is is parents' sense of ability to to intervene or impact or again that sense of powerlessness, right? So for you, much like other discussions that we've had, gaming isn't a thing. You had that that is a place of comfort, right? You that that had a, a place for you in your life before your children, right? No, no, but my, I have a kid who will get, who would get addicted yeah. if I didn't play summer. Right. But, yeah. And so I think what, what the biggest challenge, in my view, that many parents of teenagers feel, and I think we've talked around this in multiple ways tonight, is how do I feel empowered enough to engage in this relationship and maintain the ties of this relationship and also I like the language that you used as leaders of this family how do I maintain that place because what I fundamentally believe is that our kids really require that particularly as they're navigating adolescence which feels complicated and uncharted and a little bit scary the way that we best help our kids drive through that path is by setting some very clear boundaries of what is it like to live in this family? What are my expectations of you as a person? What are my expectations of your of our interpersonal relationship? And know, as you said earlier, that I am firmly and fundamentally behind you. And I am going to do everything in my power to help you successfully, but sometimes uncomfortably navigate this path, right? And successfully doesn't mean I'm going to protect you from every pitfall and opportunity for failure. And that's that's my view of all of this discussion that we've had here, is that it's hard and there isn't, there isn't an easy answer. Some kids, as we said earlier, are easier to, to do this with than others. Um, but so much of this discussion is about just reclaiming our own sense of kind of strength and power and our willingness to do what sometimes is really the hard path. So I think, um, so I, I, I feel like that's a great summation of a lot of the pieces that we covered. And, and I just want to say in the, just for now, in the interest of time, um, I know that some people either have babysitters or they need to go. So I will send out um, an email to everybody that was here tonight. So if you haven't given us your email, please do. And I'll send resources, any of the um, things that you guys might recommend that people can take a look at or read further about, and also um, contact information for the panelists. So if you'd like to ask a question, um, and maybe just for five minutes at the end, if you guys don't mind staying for another five minutes, if you wanted to actually come up and, and ask a question, that would be fine too. So I wanted to just say thank you to all of you for coming tonight. Really, I can see that.